Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Knockin'. This is our second episode of the COVID-19 series where we talk current events with guests in different fields affected by the pandemic. Our guest on today's podcast is Dr. Robert Furler, Assistant Professor of Immunology at Weill Cornell Medicine. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Furler on April 5th. We talked about the immune response, how vaccines are created, and how to learn more about the clinical trials happening related to COVID-19. We also discussed his research into HIV and how that took him to places like Djibouti, Egypt, Sudan, and Tunisia. His teaching methodology of backward design, which can be applicable to most of the decisions we make in life. And finally, he shares an intriguing choice for his favorite Bruin. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Furler. Hi, Dr. Furler. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Hi, and thanks for having me. Sure. So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application. We hmm. think it'll serve as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you is, describe the most significant challenge you have faced and the steps you have taken to overcome the challenge. How has this challenge affected your academic or professional achievement? Yeah, okay. That's a pretty difficult one, um, but it's a great question. So I think uh, one of my biggest challenges uh, in my life and my career uh, happened after my postdoc, or actually during my postdoc. Um, I was at the University of Miami Miller uh, School of Medicine, and I was uh, about a year into my postdoc, and then I had some family circumstances come up um, where I had to leave the postdoc uh, right away and um, move to be closer to family on the opposite side of Florida. Um, and it was a pretty traumatic uh, decision. Like I had to make the decision quite quickly, uh, and I moved um, quite abruptly. And I, I moved without a, a new job after my postdoc. Um, and it was really uh, concerning. It was very scary. Um, and I, I went for a, a short period of time being unemployed. Um, and I really never uh, fell out of love with science. I still was passionate about it, but there really wasn't any um, open positions uh, uh, in Fort Myers at the time. Um, after about a few months um, of just working some retail just to, to stay in a to stay afloat. Um, I was able to get an adjunct teaching position at a local college in Fort Myers. And this really changed my life dramatically. Um, I, I did one semester of general biology and I, I um, taught undergrads during that time. After about a semester, uh, I applied for a full-time faculty position at that college uh, and I was able to uh, secure that position. And it really uh, changed the trajectory of my career uh, and my life. I, I realized that having to teach biology, I had to know it inside and out uh, because the students would ask questions and I wanted to make sure I knew them. So I, I looked back at my undergraduate textbooks, really read through them line by line and uh, began to learn biology at a deeper level. Um, I think these hardships that happen in life can really define who you are. And uh, relearning biology, uh, understanding biology from a student's eyes and now a professor's eyes, it, it's really helped me in my research. Um, and it was definitely a weak point in my life, having to, to quit my postdoc and uh, move across state. Um, but I just, I stuck in there and really I've, I've grown so much from that adversity. Um, it's been a defining point in my life. Um, I gained the confidence of not only being able to teach a subject, but to initiate my own first laboratory. Uh, and it's really, uh, 
helped me transition from a training program to a faculty position. Um, wasn't the normal path probably, but it, it really uh, defined who I became later. Oh, that's that's great to hear that you were able to to kind of take that that tough experience and uh, you know learn from it, improve your ability to teach and and kind of grow stronger and and help you kind of set the rest of your career back on track. So the we want to take it back and and we'll we love to ask about undergrad. So you went to San Francisco State for undergrad and you majored in cell and molecular biology and you minored in chemistry. Did you yeah. always know? Um, that that a career in the sciences was was in your future. Were you thinking maybe medical school at that time? Yeah, no. I like I've always loved science uh, since an early age. Um, but in high school, I also developed a language uh, love for foreign languages, and I studied French and Chinese and Spanish. So when I went into graduate, or sorry, into uh, San Francisco State, I actually had a my first major was in foreign linguistics. And I uh, was toying with the idea of going into the sciences as a double major. So my first year, I took some chemistry. Uh, absolutely loved it. Uh, I loved it in high school. Um, and I started taking some foreign language classes at, in college. Um, but it was this, my first summer, I uh, decided to take genetics out of sequence. So I actually took genetics before general bio one. Um, and that course really changed my perspective on my career. Uh, I, I loved the class. I finally began to understand how life worked. Um, and genetics really melded to my passions, uh, language and science. Genetics is a language. And I, I really quickly realized that there are a lot of parallels between genetics and my language classes. Um, I took a few more molecular biology classes after that, and I was hooked. I realized that molecular biology was a way to uh, study a type of language, um, and there was plenty of chemistry involved as well. So it was an application of chemistry um, and linguistics. Um, in my senior year, I began working in a research lab uh, as an undergrad. Uh, one of my mentor, faculty mem mentors, um, uh, let me know that there was an opening. So I decided to apply and I began just doing some very basic molecular biology wet lab uh, work. I learned how to do cell culture and flow cytometry and some other techniques. Um, and this really uh, solidified my decision to go into graduate school. Um, I did think about medical school uh, for a period of time, but I really wanted to know how things work. Uh, and, and thought that graduate school was the right fit for me. And so knowing that you wanted to go to graduate school, what made you pick UCLA and what kind of made you settle on the, the program there in, in microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics? Yeah, so when I was in a research lab, I decided uh, in San Francisco that I was really passionate about infectious disease. Um, I've always been interested in infectious disease, even as a young kid. Uh, one of my favorite movies uh, in the 90s was Outbreak. I know it's a comeback on Netflix, and a lot of people are watching it now, but that really made an impact on me back in the 90s. Um, and I also read Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, in one of my classes at San Francisco State. And that really made me intrigued with not only infectious disease, but the HIV pandemic. Um, so I really wanted to shift my research focus to, a, um, to looking at HIV. So when I was applying for graduate school, I looked at different colleges across the country that had prominent HIV researchers um, and had an active program in, in some type of virology or immunology. UCLA was definitely one of my top choices. And the UCLA AIDS Institute um, had several renowned scientists uh, working on HIV. So I decided to apply there. It was definitely a top school that I had hoped getting in. It was not my safety school, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and 
I went down there to interview for the UCLA Access Program. Um, and I was just really enthusiastic about the people I met, the faculty, the program staff, all the other applicants. They were really competent, engaging, and lively. Uh, I felt at home right away, and I was just blown away by the beauty of the UCLA campus and the, the warmth of the people. I wanted to join right away. Microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics, uh, that uh, was a department that I kept going back towards, uh, primarily because of the HIV researchers. Tell us a little bit about the, the program itself once you matriculated. How big was your cohort? Did you end up rotating through different labs before choosing one? It sounds like you kind of knew your focus wanted to be on HIV research and maybe comment a little bit about um, if you how well it, it prepared you for for a future career or if you thought it prepared you well yeah sure so I applied to the access program uh, at UCLA and I started in the fall of 2004 I think my cohort size was around 40 students um, and that first year was really a, a great time um, we had quite a bit of fun uh, knowing each other inside of the classroom, but also also outside of the class. Um, at that time, UCLA had just opened up new graduate student housing in Westwood, and a lot of our class were the first tenants. Um, so we were classmates and neighbors. Um, Is this uh, Weyburn Terrace area? Yeah, it's Weyburn Terrace. Uh, so we're, my apartment was brand new, Okay, um, and we were the first occupants, which is really cool. Um, so that first year, I rotated through three different labs, um, and I, they all, were all focused on HIV research, so it helped narrow it down. Um, each lab had its pros and cons, um, but I decided to go with my gut, and I chose Dr. Crystal Arden Bogart's lab. Um, it was really important uh, to be able to rotate through three different labs. I, I knew other students at other universities that didn't have that opportunity. And they had to choose a mentor right away without really getting to know their personality. So it was, it was really great having a couple months getting to, to know the lab, the lab mentor, the lab research, before you had to make a decision. Because it's quite an important decision um, to pick which lab you're going to join. Um, I chose Crystal because, uh, well, she had a strong publication record. She was respected in the HIV field. Um, for her work on the human thymus. And I could tell during my rotation that she was really passionate about the subject. And more, more importantly, I think, um, for my decision was that I could see that she cared about my professional and personal growth uh, uh, during my time in her lab. Um, I quickly became part of her lab family. And I have so many good memories with that group of people. Um, for how did it support my my career path uh, uh, in so many ways. So in my, ed, in all my education and training, uh, undergrad, grad, postdoc, faculty, um, I really feel that I learned how to be a scientist uh, at UCLA in Crystal's lab. Um, <laughs> when I went into it, I didn't know anything about immunology. Um, and it was really those uh, first couple courses in the first two years of my graduate school that I um, really learned uh, a little bit about being a scientist. The, the courses were really interesting because they weren't rote memorization like in undergrad. Um, you definitely needed to know the material. They gave you a textbook, but the tests and the discussions weren't um, uh, multiple choice and uh, didn't really test your memorization. It was really about uh, knowing how to design experiments and interpret results. Um, these courses at UCLA were really about applying knowledge rather than memorizing knowledge. Um, and this was pretty impactful uh, throughout the rest of my career. Um, and it was an excellent way of teach, teaching. Um, and I've, uh, I've tried to use those same techniques in, in my own teaching. Um, in Crystal's lab, um, she was really great at allowing me to have independence in my thought and my experiments. She always supported my hypotheses, even if they were wrong. Uh, and she allowed me to carry out uh, my experiments, present my findings. Uh, she also 
made me write several grants during my uh, period there, and I absolutely hated that. Um, but uh, looking back and having my own lab now, I, I see how valuable it was um, to write those grants. Um, so UCLA and uh, graduate school with Crystal uh, really prepared me to, to, to appreciate biology and life at such a greater depth, and it's really helped me with my career. Yeah, sounds like uh, you had a great experience in getting to learn a, a lot there. Uh, so you're at UCLA, your dissertation was called the Transcriptional Regulation of the Human TGF Beta-1 Gene by GLI Transcription. So we're hoping you could uh, break that down for us and, and maybe explain it to us like uh, like I'm a current college student who only has a very basic science understanding, even though uh, Pranav is, was kind of a, a molecular bio genius back in, back in undergrad. But we'll <laughs> sure, I won't get in. Yeah. I won't go too granular into it. If any of your listeners want to have a discussion, I'm happy to, to um, break out all the vocabulary. But yeah. um, in Crystal's lab, I really became interested in how human T cells um, proliferate, migrate, and develop. Um, T cells are one type of white blood cell um, uh, that's important in your immune system. And I, I really was interested in how T cells work uh, during ongoing infections and how did they come about? So how did they develop um, in a human? Um, so it was really interested in immunology, interested in T cells, uh, and actually one of my cor elective courses in grad school um, happened to be developmental neurobiology. Uh, and this was a really interesting course that learned how brain cells develop and, and grow. And in this course, I began to learn about two really important developmental pathways, one being called, called the sonic hedgehog pathway and another, uh, the transforming growth factor superfamily. So these two pathways are really important uh, in the embryo as uh, the brain is being uh, planned and laid out and, and proliferating. So I, I knew that the transforming growth factor family was really important in, in immune, immunity. Um, I had studied TGF-beta, one of the proteins um, uh, in immunology um, in a previous course, and it would come up in my research all the time when I looked at immunosuppression. So I thought that if the TGF-beta family was important in immunology, maybe the sonic hedgehog family played a role as well. So I began to look into both of these developmental pathways in immunology and found that there is quite a bit of research um, about sonic hedgehog and immunity as well. So I began to kind of dissect how these two pathways were interrelated in immunology. Um, so I, I focused primarily on human CD4 T cells um, and how they turn on these pathways once the T cells become activated during an infection. Um, and the sonic hedgehog pathway, when it gets turned on, it uh, activates these downstream proteins called glee transcription factors. Um, and the, the focus of my dissertation was really how these glee transcription factors could turn on TGF-beta in T cells. Um, and the temporal um, uh, activation of these proteins coincided with when a T cell gets turned on during infection and when it gets turned off. Um, so there's definitely a lot of jargon um, in my dissertation, um, but it really made me become more interested in cell signaling and cell development. Uh, and I pursued this in my future research um, after UCLA. One of the things that, that kind of stands out when, when looking at your resume is uh, some of the work that you did for the UN Population Fund in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, kind of wanted to ask about what, what made you to decide to, to kind of join that program and what was it like working in, in countries like Djibouti, Egypt, Sudan, and Tunisia for, for almost two and a half years? 
Yeah, no, that was a really interesting um, position that I had. Uh, so in 2006, uh, while in grad school, I, I began going to conferences and presenting my work. And um, I began to um, meet other collaborators and people in the field. And one of the conferences that I went to or started attending regularly was the International AIDS Conference. I think my first one was in Toronto. Um, but every time this conference is held, it's held in a different part of the world. Um, the really interesting thing about this conference is that it brings together scientists and physicians um, and also HIV activists, um, but also uh, diplomatic organizations, non-government organizations or NGOs, um, the WHO, World Health Organization, United Nations. There's a lot of different um, government entities that attend this conference as well. So it, um, the large conferences can have like 20 to 30,000 people. And at one of these conferences, I can't quite remember which one, I met um, an employee of the United Nations uh, Population Fund, the UNFPA, um, who worked primarily with HIV, uh, with women and families in the Middle East and North Africa region. So Sasha Bodorosa was his name, and he, um, his uh, headquarters was in Cairo, Egypt at the time. Um, and I met him at this conference with a group of other people. Um, we talked about our work and um, I was a scientist and uh, most of them were either working for NGOs or for the UN. And Sasha was beginning to develop this program for his region um, to help educate uh, social workers and NGO officers um, and the community in the Middle East and North Africa region about HIV. Um, there was quite a bit of stigma and lack of knowledge of what HIV was and how it could spread in the region. So Sasha uh, invited me to, to join one of his teams um, to facilitate these orientations on what HIV is. Um, it was a really great opportunity. Um, I never lived in those regions, but I uh, was flown out uh, for these, uh, uh, these orientations. And it was really interesting to meet um, these diverse populations and, um, in these regions. Uh, the, there's such a large knowledge gap of not only what HIV is, but just general biology um, general infectious disease, transmission, um, and stigma. So it, it was a really great time for me to learn about other cultures. Um, and hopefully they learned something from, from us as well. Um, but my role was basically to give presentations to the groups and have to lead discussions on basic HIV science, uh, where we are with HIV treatments and HIV vaccination studies and also HIV cure research. So it was a, yeah, it was a really great different uh, type of um, position uh, in my career. Very different from working in a lab or, um, or in a classroom. So it, it sounds like um, that this was your kind of first foray into like public health. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you were um, your experience kind of teaching these seminars and, and teaching basic science and how did you know that you were successfully conveying the, the important information, the relevant information, and maybe a comparison of, of maybe teaching some of those classes or presenting at those conferences to um, teaching undergraduate students here, here in the States and kind of what you did in, in your postdoc. Yeah, it was, it was very, interesting like as a whenever you're teaching a class it's 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 important to continuously ask yourself are your students getting the material are they understanding what you're trying to to say um and to be frank it's it's not always easy knowing if they they understood or not um for the unfpa during those orientations it was it was 
different because I think one of the, the main objectives was to get their their basic knowledge up, um, which can you can easily test for to see if they um, uh, understood the material. But it was also about changing their attitudes a little bit. Um, going into many of the orientations, there was so much stigma against HIV, um, and that had underlying uh, roots in homophobia and stigma against uh, intravenous drug users. And um, it was really important to, uh, to see if they were understanding some of the, the messaging. I think the basic science component helps take some of the fear out of the stigma. Um, so they understood that you couldn't transmit the virus through a toilet seat or, or, or some very basic myths. Um, and I think that that helped. Um, so it's, it's very, I think, pretty easy to gauge if somebody understands uh, basic um, logic concepts. Um, it was pretty, it was nice to see a lot of their attitudes change throughout the orientation. Um, and they weren't so prejudiced um, towards the end as they were um, at the beginning of the, the orientations usually. Um, they were more thoughtful in their responses and, and less irrational. For teaching in general, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You, like I said, you have to constantly um, check with your students to, to make sure that they're, they're learning and they're comprehending the material. Um, <clears throat> and you can do this through, through testing, but really it's, I like, uh, I like my students to kind of teach me the material afterwards. Um, I, I don't think they, they really know the material unless they can tell somebody else. So if they can teach another student, um, that's always nice, but. Um, Sounds like a, an incredible opportunity and experience kind of working, working through some of those public health challenges, especially in uh, those other countries. Yeah, it was a real treat for me. Um, so you currently serve as the assistant professor of immunology at Weill Cornell Medicine. Hoping you could tell us a little bit about your current role and, and kind of what that means. Yeah, sure. So um, just a little bit of background of how I got here from my postdoc. <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that I had my first position when I had to move over to the west coast of Florida. Um, and I started my first faculty position there. Um, I did quite a bit of teaching um, in that position, and I taught general biogenetics and microbiology um, during that period. But I also began my first laboratory at that college, and that was a, a pretty impactful position for me. Um, when I was working there, I went to another uh, international AIDS conference and met um, Dr. Douglas Nixon, who is a, uh, a senior investigator in the HIV field. Once again, to your listeners, if, they're, if your students are, are looking in this field and they're curious about what they want to do with their careers, I, I strongly suggest attending conferences um, in biology or whatever field they're interested in, and just go out and meet people, uh, learn about the different career paths, there's industry, academia, um, diplomacy, um, government work, um, so many different things. And really networking at these conferences has been really helpful for my career. Um, and sometimes they're fun. So, um, but while I was at, at, in Florida, I had gone to one of these conferences and, and met somebody who, um, ended up recruiting me to the George Washington University in 2016. Um, I had moved my lab up to DC and uh, I didn't really have any teaching responsibilities in that faculty position, which was quite nice. I was able to focus primarily on my HIV research. Uh, and then in 2018, in June, um, I came up here to Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. Um, and I'm still doing HIV research. Um, so I don't really have any teaching responsibilities right now, which frees up my time to do 
a lot of research. I also have some administrative duties um, here at Cornell. Um, but my main day-to-day -day work is on HIV cure research uh, in, the, in a basic science lab. Um, personally, my research deals, still deals with CD4 T cells and macrophages and how they're altered at the molecular level during HIV replication. So how do HIV proteins affect um, these cells? Um, but I also work with a large group of investigators here at Cornell and throughout several institutions around the Americas on a large grant focused on HIV cure. Um, the group has initiated uh, one clinical trial using cell therapy against HIV. Um, another clinical trial is being initiated using anti-HIV antibodies and biologics. Um, yeah, no, uh, it's been really exciting here at Cornell. Um, the environment at the university, but also in the city is just wonderful. There's world-class scientists, not only in my building, but just down the street at nearby institutions. Um, so it's, it's been a great position. I've been very lucky. And I know you have this um, philosophy of, of kind of backwards reasoning and was hoping you could, that's how you like to design it. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. As far as uh, my philosophy of teaching students, uh, undergrads and grad students, this idea of backwards design, um, it's not just unique for teaching, but for a lot of things. Um, so whenever you have a goal, you really need to focus on the end point. So let's say, just for example, college. And I'm sure a lot of your students uh, or your listeners have gone through this process already. If you want to achieve that goal of graduating, you really need to think of the last day first. So what are you going to graduate with? Is it going to be a bachelor's in science or a bachelor's of arts? What's your major? There's a lot of decisions that um, need to be made to get to that last point. Um, so th the same thing with, with teaching, you need to figure out what they need to, to learn um, at the, the end. So in your syllabus, when you're writing one, you have to figure out by the end of the semester, what do you want them to know? And then you have to plan backwards. You have to think about how much time do you have? Um, and you kind of uh, make your plan by stepping back in time rather than moving forward. And one of the, the um, things we wanted to talk about uh, today is a little bit about the uh, the COVID-19 crisis because we know that's that's top of mind for a lot of our listeners. Mm -hmm. And so for, for those of the non-scientist listeners out there, we're hoping maybe you could help explain a little bit about the how the normal immune response works for, let's say, like the flu and mm -hmm. maybe how COVID-19 causes a, a different immune response. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so the immune response is, is really interesting. It's, uh, it's a beautiful part of your body that it has evolved to protect you. Um, the immune system is made up of uh, many different things. Uh, they can be, it's made up of uh, small molecules like proteins called antibodies, um, all the way up to large cells um, called T cells and macrophages and neutrophils. There's many types of, of white blood cells that are involved in your immune response. So normally um, your immune system uh, is turned off and it's not really uh, active because you're, uh, if you're healthy. The moment your body gets an insult from an infection, and this could either be initiated by a cut or through um, catching a virus from a sneeze or, or whatnot, um, once that pathogen enters your body, um, there are white blood cells throughout your body that can actually sense little um, signals. So it might be um, pieces of DNA that the body doesn't recognize. It can be proteins or lipids or fats um, from the pathogen that your body doesn't recognize. 
And basically your immune system says, this shouldn't be here. This is not human. This shouldn't be in the body. So it sends off this little cascade um, of events. And your immune system starts building this army to fight off that thing that shouldn't be in your body. So um, in the first few days, you have specialized white blood cells, um, part of uh, your innate immune system. And these things are, these cells are found throughout your body all the time, just looking for invaders. Um, after about uh, a week of infection, one to two weeks, um, if the pathogen is still in your body, other uh, white blood cells start to proliferate and get turned on. Um, these include lymphocytes, and uh, two main types of lymphocytes are T cells and B cells. They often get turned on in little pieces of your body called lymph nodes. You may have felt these before, swollen lymph nodes. They swell because an army is being built uh, in that location, and those cells are gearing up to, to fight off the, the infection. So I, I like to think of the immune system. The normal immune system is developing um, an army to fight off uh, an invader. Um, now, sometimes that army can be built um, when it shouldn't be. So there are these diseases called autoimmunities where your body becomes allergic to something that isn't really dangerous. Something like pollen or sometimes piece of your, pieces of your own body get attacked um, and you have this hyperactive immune response where you get rashes and itching and swelling um, and it can be quite dangerous. And those autoimmunities are, uh, uh, or just one type of immune response. Um, so it's really important that we can turn our immune systems down when we don't have an infection. So you can think of building an army, but also we have to tell that army to stop when there's no infection. So it's typically how the immune system works. When your body sees something that shouldn't be there, you build this army to fight it off. Um, so that normal response happens during COVID or influenza. So both are, are RNA viruses that uh, affect the, the lungs and other tissues. Um, and in the first uh, couple days of infection, the virus comes in and infects a, a cell and starts to replicate. But the immune system starts to recognize that this infection is ongoing and it shouldn't be there. So it starts trying to build an army. Now, um, for influenza, you typically do, you can get sick if you've never been exposed to that virus before. Um, so you can get sniffles and shortness of breath and sneezing and fever, uh, and that's quite common. Um, Luckily, we've known about influenza for quite a long time, and we've developed these, these things called vaccinations. Uh, and vaccinations are typically pieces of the virus or the pathogen that we can put into our body, and the virus is inactivated, so it can't replicate itself very well, if at all. But our immune system can build an army against those little proteins or those parts of the vaccine. So you have this army without ever being exposed to the invader. That's basically what a vaccination is. So for COVID-19, we don't have um, that vaccination yet. Um, and we are, the human population hasn't seen this virus before, as far as we know. So this is a new pathogen that um, everyone on the planet hasn't really had that army built up already. So we're kind of left um, uh, a little bit um, without a weapon. And so maybe the, the next question then is, um, so how come we're able to get uh, new flu vaccines every year, 
but scientists currently estimate that it'll be between 12 and 18 months for a vaccine for COVID-19. And do you agree with the, the kind of length of that estimate? Yeah, so even though we get a, a flu shot every season or every, every year, the work that goes into finding out how to make that vaccine starts quite a bit earlier. So um, there are groups of scientists and clinicians around the world. Um, oftentimes they're in Southeast Asia uh, and other locations looking for new flu virus that pops up. So one thing with RNA viruses like uh, influenza, HIV, and COVID-19, these are all RNA viruses, is that they have this uh, ability to mutate um, and they can uh, change their genetic code, which is why we need a new vaccine every year for the flu, uh, because it's constantly mutating. Well, these scientists that are all throughout the globe, they're looking for influenza, like new strains of influenza that have popped up um, over the past few months. And these can be found in birds and pigs and humans. Um, so there's a lot of people looking to see what types of influenza are starting to, to replicate and to spread at a fast rate. So um, generally there's only a handful of influenza viruses that get used each year to put into the vaccine. So maybe the top three viruses that are in the environment will be used to make that vaccine. And the vaccine process um, is not foolproof. So we can make a bunch of influenza virus uh, and, and 12 months is fast to make uh, enough uh, aliquots of the vaccine for a global population. Unfortunately, that's, that's very fast. Um, the amount of people on this planet is quite large. Um, but every year we get a, a new influenza virus vaccine and it doesn't always protect from what's out there. Um, they have to make a prediction um, of which three viruses will likely cause the most disease um, in order to make that vaccine. They don't take all the combinations to make the vaccine. They just take a handful. Um, so 12 months to 18 months is if they're moving fast. Um, yeah, and that's with a lot of hard work. Uh, drugs, on the other hand, can take uh, upwards of nine years, I think is the average for a FDA approved drug um, to go through clinical trials. Um, so a 12 months to 18 months, unfortunately, is, is on the faster end. So speaking about drugs, was curious if your thoughts on um, if COVID-19 has any similarities um, with HIV, and I've, I've heard that some researchers are testing drugs that are effective against HIV, some antivirals, as being potential candidates for, for use against COVID-19. Yeah, I think there are some early reports uh, that discussed uh, some HIV drugs called protease inhibitors um, that were being used and currently be used, being used in some clinical trials against COVID-19. So, uh, both uh, HIV and COVID-19 are RNA viruses, um, just like influenza is an RNA virus. Um, so there are definitely some HIV drugs that are being used uh, and tested in the clinic against COVID-19. Um, are the viruses uh, similar? They're very different viruses. HIV infects T cells and macrophages. So it attacks your immune system and it takes its RNA and turns it into another chemical called DNA before it replicates. Um, COVID-19 uh, does not have that step, uh, which is a good thing because it actually doesn't mutate nearly as fast as HIV does. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, there, are several different trials, not only with HIV drugs, but 
right now clinicians are, are typically testing drugs that are already out there and available for patients for other conditions. Um, since those drugs are, are known to be safe in, these pop, in, in people, um, you can test it for other conditions much easier. So it doesn't take the full nine years. So you can take an HIV or maybe a cholesterol drug and you can test it much faster than if you developed a brand new drug that never existed before. Um, a good um, website for your listeners, if they're interested in what types of trials are being done on COVID-19, um, would be to go to the government website called clinicaltrials.gov. Um, once again, it's clinicaltrials.gov. And on the landing page, there's actually a link to all the current uh, clinical studies with COVID-19. Um, and this covers clinical trials in 50 states uh, in the US and also in 210 countries. Um, so for COVID-19 right now, um, the government has 306 studies that have been um, uh, updated on this, this website. So you can scroll through there. There's many different um, drugs being tested, including HIV drugs. Um, but then there's also um, vaccine studies and also um, uh, plasma studies uh, that are ongoing. So clinicaltrials.gov is a great resource um, for anyone that wants to, to know about what's being tested. Great. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think that's a great resource if people are interested. Uh, so changing topics here a little bit, um, and this might be a little bit out of the blue, but we saw it and, and are curious about, did you get an opportunity to, to meet both uh, Prince Harry and uh, Elton John? <laughs> I wish I got to meet them. No, I was, I was in the front row, um, but yeah, at that, one of those conferences, uh, at the International AIDS Conference, both uh, Prince Harry and Elton John gave um, speeches. Um, yeah, no, it was quite nice uh, to see them. They're, they're both strong advocates for uh, HIV research and advocacy um, programs. They're, they've been very supportive to many uh, HIV groups uh, in the past couple decades. So it was my pleasure to, to watch them speak, <laughs> but I didn't get to meet them, unfortunately. That's fair. And, uh, and finally, our, our last two uh, questions. What is your favorite UCLA memory and who is your favorite Bruin? And you can't say John Wooden and or your mentors, so. Well, John Wooden was great, but he wasn't gonna be my favorite anyway. I, I'm okay. not a sports fan, sorry. Sorry, Bruins. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite UCLA memory, there were so many, to be honest. Um, I, I really love the school. Uh, but I guess I have to say my uh, day of my dissertation defense. I mean, that was really magical and exciting. It was after six years of research and um, I had gotten to know quite a few people in my department, uh, obviously in my lab, uh, throughout the school. Um, it, was, it was so wonderful having so many colleagues and fellow students, faculty, and my family was there. They were all in the same place supporting me as I defended my six years of research at UCLA. It was, it was really great. I mean, the audience was engaged during my presentation. They had some really thoughtful questions and responses um, after my presentation. Um, I met with my committee and they were just extremely supportive. Um, they congratulated me. I uh, received my doctorate and we had a big party. Um, later that evening, my mentor threw a personal party as well for my lab and my family at the house. It was just a really great day. Um, it was the closing of a chapter of my life that I, I, I will always cherish. And um, yeah, the people at UCLA are, are the best. Um, as far as my favorite Bruin, I, I had to do some research and, and look up famous Bruins. Because, um, of course, I knew about John Wooden. He's quite famous, but uh, I wanted to go more science-oriented. Uh, and um, I didn't realize that Glenn Seaborg was actually a UCLA alumni. Um, and I think the first time I 
saw his name was in high school chemistry class um, as a uh, see Borgium. I always thought that was a interesting name for an element, but it turns out that Glenn Seberg um, graduated from UCLA. Um, well, several decades ago, <laughs> I think in the thirties. Um, but he uh, discovered uh, ten elements on the periodic table of elements. Um, has a uh, element named after him. Um, let's see. He was a co-discoverer of plutonium, americium, curium, berkelium, californium, einsteinium, and a few others. And it, it, it's just really impressive that uh, he went to UCLA as well. Um, his accomplishments far surpassed mine. Um, he won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Um, he worked on the Manhattan Project. Really cool guy. Um, really interesting story. So I would definitely say he is one of my favorite Bruins. So it sounds like uh, a goal maybe we should put, should have for, for you is either name name an element or maybe at the very least name a, a bacterium or a virus, something named after you or a technique, maybe a molecular biology technique, something that so some Bruin, you know, 70 years from now is like, you know, Robert, Dr. Robert Fuller was, was the one who is, is my favorite Bruno because of the work he did in immunology. So. Yeah, I would love that. I'll definitely try. I'll try for that. All right. Uh, so thanks so much for uh, joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. But before we let you go, feel free to give us a, uh, a 30 second plug for something going on in your life, whether that's your research or maybe, you know, words of wisdom or a calming message in this a little bit chaotic time in the world. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I think the most important thing is, is really just to meditate and to, to think about um, what's important in your life. Um, uh, I personally try not to watch the news 24 seven right now, uh, only because it stresses me out. Um, I instead focus my energy on something that I'm really passionate about, which happens to be infectious disease. Um, so that's, that's helping me out quite a bit. Um, yeah. Uh, make sure you're communicating with your loved ones. Um, they're really important. Also, uh, throughout your careers, uh, it's definitely not a straight path. I don't think for anyone that's successful, it's a straight path. Um, you can definitely fall, take a, a break, um, just get back up again um, and realize that your story is interesting. Um, and even if it's not how you thought it was going to go. Perfect. I think those are some really poignant words. Thanks again to Dr. Robert Furler for joining us on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations at Bruin, the number one ear at gmail.com. And please make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about awesome Bruins. This is Nakin Bandari signing off, and hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go Bruin one ear and out the other. <laughs>